Welcome everyone to the Jesus Never Ran podcast. This week, we are counting down the top five most downloaded podcasts of 2021 on this podcast. So the number five that we released on Monday was God in Nature with Diane Bryant and Scott Jenkins. Number four, which we released yesterday, was Enneagram for Wholeness with Annie Diamond. And number three, this guy, I'm telling you, what a genuine, beautiful, wonderful soul. Drum roll, please, for number three. Surviving I Kissed Dating Goodbye with Joshua Harris. Enjoy. Who is Joshua Harris? Wow, that is a that's a deep question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am a father. I've got three amazing kids. I am a business owner. I help companies that are needing to clarify their message and communicate who they are. And I am a person that's in a kind of big transition when it comes to my beliefs around faith and religion. So those are all kind of parts of of who I am right now. Yes. And Joshua, a lot of people are going to know you based on your book. So if there, if there's anybody listening right now and they're saying, boy, that name sure sounds familiar. Where is it most likely that they've heard your name from Joshua? Yeah. So in the late nineties, I wrote a book when I was 21 called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And it was a book that was basically saying in light of everything that we've been taught about how important it is to save sex for marriage, we should go even further and not even date. And we should instead use our singleness to prepare for marriage. And so it was a very radical, idealistic, I would say naive perspective about relationships and sex. Yes. And as a person that was well entrenched in the evangelical church during those exact years, you know, that was a book that we all talked a lot about. Mm. It was a book that we all were, I would say, thankful for, proponents of, advocates of. And so we don't bring you on this podcast to shame you or <laughs> to speak negatively about you. That was from your heart. That was something that you believed in that mm. moment, in that time. That was something that as a writer, as an artist, you know, we find ways to get whatever out is within the inside of us. And what that was for you just happened to catch fire and everybody wanted to read it. But then the reason I reached out to you for this podcast is because I stumbled on, I got COVID over Christmas and I I think is when this was. And I stumbled upon the documentary that was done centering Mm -hmm. on your book, Mm -hmm. which you did not produce or even I think have the brainchild behind or anything like that, but so graciously agreed to be a part of. And the whole concept of the documentary was how that book was actually harmful to a large demographic and culture Mm. of people, mostly young women who Mm -hmm. were, you know, in that space, reading that book in that culture of the time. So unfold for us a little bit of how that happened for you. When did you start sensing that, wait a second, maybe I didn't have this all right, or wait a second, maybe some of this was harmful? Well, you know, it took a long time for me to recognize the problems in the book. The book's success became a big part of my identity. I was in an environment that had believed those ideas around sex and around relationships for a long time. And so my work was applauded in a lot of circles. And I thought that it was, I thought I was doing God's work. 
You know, I thought I was sharing God's message. And so criticism that came, I really blocked out and ignored for way too long. And it's one of the things I, I really regret, but it started to kind of, the wheels started to fall off the cart in the church that I was pastoring. I started to recognize that our church had been really creating a culture that was very legalistic, that was harmful to people. The, the kind of the long-term bad fruit of that was coming out in different ways. And that was really the first time that I started making connections like, wait a second, my book ties into this, this pressure that you have to do all these different things to really be a good parent, to really be, you know, faithful to God, it's just kind of layering rule upon rule. And so um, it was stepping away from being a pastor, going to a graduate school of theology that kind of gave me the space to start having the, the kind of honest conversations with other people where I wasn't in such a defensive posture. And that took many different forms. That was fellow students I was talking to. That was engaging with people on social media. I was so afraid. I was so afraid to open certain doors. I was so afraid to have certain conversations. But I remember someone on, on Twitter wrote, you know, your book was used against me like a weapon. And I responded to this person, a very talented writer named Elizabeth Esther. And that became an actual conversation where she showed me forgiveness and we began to dialogue about this. And yet that little interchange then became public and people started talking about what is Josh Harris apologizing for? So I was kind of pushed into this place of saying, you know what? I haven't dealt with this. I've been ignoring this. I need to figure out what am I sorry for? What do I disagree with? You know, not just I'm sorry that you were affected that way, but what's actually good or bad, right or wrong about the content and the structure of my book and the ideas that I was sharing. And, and that was the beginning of that journey of, of rethinking those things, which involved the, the documentary that you mentioned. It's so easy to point fingers or want to use you as the poster child for unhealthy purity culture, whatever it is. But I know even in my own life, I was the youth speaker for a number of years and I had to go through a similar process of thinking through because this is not something Joshua Harris brought into the world. This was a total culture that a lot of us were buying into in a much larger way than just the book that you wrote. I mean, this was a, a much bigger problem that now I think we're starting to see the aftermath of. And mm. I was a part of it just as much as you were, as were most mm. youth leaders, as were many parents. And mm. so this is a large scale lamentation period for, mm. I think, a lot of us. Could you outline a little bit for us to give some clarity? Because maybe for some folks listening, they don't even understand what we're talking about. So when we talk about some of the questions that started coming out about your book or about purity culture in general, what were some mm. of the main sticking points that people were coming forward and saying, this was hurtful or this really right. put me in a bad spot? Well, I guess it's understanding the kind of factors involved with the content of my book and what we now, you know, people look back on and describe as purity culture. We didn't call it that at the time, but it was this emphasis on the importance of sexual purity, saving sex for marriage, virginity as the ideal, and such an emphasis on that, that really a person felt that if they were to lose their virginity, if they were to have sex before marriage, or even 
less <laughs> significant sexual expressions that they were damaged goods. So a lot of the analogies that were used all had to do with loss. You know, you if you have sex, you're like a chewed up piece of chewing gum or you're like a rose that's had its petals stripped off kind of a thing. And what was taking place at that time was that parents were concerned about their kids being influenced by a secular culture. They were there was fear around sexually, you know, transmitted infections. There was a culture war taking place around abortion. There was a culture war taking place around contraception. And all of those factors began to influence the way the church and, you know, you're describing youth groups and different people were talking, where there was a hyper focus on on sex. And, and I would say a fear-driven focus on sex. And so, you know, if you were a teen in those years, even if this wasn't what people were specifically saying, you got the general impression that the most important aspect of your relationship to God had to do with what you did with your genitals or what you didn't do with your genitals. You know, it's like masturbation, pornography, and not having sex. And it just consumed your entire, you know, world, essentially. So the books, the conferences, the speeches, all those things were reinforcing this and trying to support people in this hyper-focus on this, which, you know, parents, pastors, teens, all viewed as pursuing holiness honoring God with your body, all those kinds of things. 20 years later, people are kind of living out their lives and, you know, getting married and having kids and, you know, all these different kinds of things. And they're looking back and they're going, wait a second, those ideas really negatively shaped me. They, they, they instilled fear into my whole perspective of my sexuality. They gave this sense of judgment you know, I spent so many of my single years, like keeping my sex drive suppressed. And then I get married and all of a sudden I'm supposed to flip a switch and, you know, have this passionate sexual relationship. Well, there's tons of sexual dysfunction or there are people who get married really young because they want to have sex. That's the only way they can, they can have sex. And then they marry someone that a few years later, they're like, why did I marry this person? Why did I, you know, why did I make the decisions I made? And so my book was at the forefront of advancing a lot of those ideas and popularizing a lot of these ideas that were in kind of subcultures of, of the church. And, you know, the, the kind of, I use the, the Christian phrase, the fruit of those ideas wasn't immediately seen. But I think there's a lot of people who are, as you put it, lamenting those values and those emphases. Yeah, that's that's so so well stated in so many ways. Which leads me to wonder if if the problem wasn't a larger scale problem of using fear mm-hmm. in so many areas of our spirituality within kind mm-hmm. of that time frame of the evangelical church. Because you know, even think about the way we talked about salvation, uh, heaven and hell. A lot of that was fear based. And so it makes sense that we would do the same thing with sex and sexuality. If I was in your shoes, that would be a a hard pill to swallow when I realized it. But then there would also be like this thing in me that just wants to continue to try to advocate for what is right and what is good and what is beautiful, which is why when I saw the documentary, I was so blessed by Mm. your humility. Uh, I questioned myself, would I be able to put myself in 
uh, a spotlight like that of a documentary that's mm-hmm. literally taking something that I probably put a lot of time and energy and blood, sweat, and tears in just to be, mm-hmm. I don't know, dragged through the mud a little bit. And so, you know, my perspective of you in the midst of that was just such a sense of humility. So what was that process like for you, your own healing process? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's easy to point to other people that are healing because of that purity culture, but then you yourself, I'm sure, had to go through a bit of healing as well. Well, thank you for those kind words. I mean, you know, when I look back on that whole time of of the lead up to doing the documentary, the process of doing the documentary, number one, there are a lot of other people involved. You know, the director and producer, a really talented lady named Jessica Vander Weingard, had the vision for it. She was doing it, planning to do a, a kind of a documentary just a, about the state of Christian dating. And we met at grad school and it evolved into telling the story of revisiting I Kiss Dating Goodbye. But so much of her vision and her just heart went into the documentary. So I'm really indebted to her and all the other people that that volunteered and, and the people who supported it. It was crowdfunded, which allowed us to give give it away for free. So people can watch this for free on YouTube. Um, it's also on Amazon Prime if you already have a, an account there. But um, it, it wasn't like this noble, I really, your words are so encouraging. But when I look back, I didn't, it wasn't, I didn't feel noble or humble or all those types of things. It was kind of like so many parts of what I had thought was true were kind of crumbling in different ways. And I was trying to, in the midst of that, make sense of it myself and also take take responsibility. You know, saddens me, I think, about religious context. And, and obviously, I'm coming from the evangelical church, but it's just so easy for leaders to put ideas out in the world to write and sell books, to do conferences, and then sort of move on and never deal with the fallout of those ideas. And I think evangelicalism can be very fad-driven. It's, you know, it's very commercial. I don't have a problem with commerce. I don't have a problem with people making money. But when you mix that with, you know, this spiritual component, there's a tremendous power and influence on people's lives and then everybody kind of looks back and says, oh, well, if something goes wrong, that's not on me. That was somebody else. And I, I had such a direct link to influencing people to believe in these ways that I felt like I needed to, to take some kind of responsibility for that. I didn't know how to do that. It was scary. You know, people are hurting, they're angry. And yet I feel like if we don't, if someone doesn't step up and say somebody needs to start this conversation of, what's broken here? What did we get wrong? Because if we don't have those conversations, we just are going to repeat this cycle. You know, it's just going to happen again, each generation practically. And so how can there be built into the way faith communities work where there's, there's some ability to assess and to evaluate and to, you know, look at the actual consequences of, of ideas and movements and, and religious fads. I think that's so true that we often overlook people's feelings, hurts, and just move right Mm -hmm. on to the next best thing, you know, the next best thing that's going to get more people in the seats, or as you said, you know, the next fad, the next great book, uh, Mm -hmm. the next great concept, when reality is what we do is we keep leaving this trail of 
hurting people, which right. I think is all starting to catch up to us now, mm. you know, in this time and space that we're living right now. And, you know, I think a big part of that, honestly, is the power of, of the internet and social media. Sure. You know, that to me, that's probably the biggest thing that has changed. I think this pattern has always been present, but in the past, there was no way for normal people to voice that to speak up and say, hey, this hurt me, or this was not good, or here's the consequence. Or if you thought those things, you just thought, oh, there's something wrong with me, Mm -hmm. you know, and you felt alone in that. And so that gave an inordinate amount of power to whoever had the, the megaphone of the church or the broadcasting network or the the Christian bookstores, the publishing houses, all those things. Those are the people with the power, the gatekeepers, the Jim Dobsons with focus on the family, you know, radio shows and those types of things. The accountability of saying, hey, wait a second, this isn't so good or this hasn't led to, to something good in my life. You never heard those stories. And now social media allows people, the internet allows people to speak up and to you know, bring some accountability to, I think, to religious institutions. There's another element to you that I find personally even more fascinating. And that Mm -hmm. is you, like myself, got to a certain place in your life. And because maybe your beliefs adjusted, your whole career kind of crumbled with it. I was a, a chaplain. I was a speaker. I was a pastor, worship leader. Those were the things that I did for the first two decades of my career. Oh, wow. All of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden your faith starts unraveling at the seams a little bit mm-hmm. and the job offers all go away as well. Yeah. So you do have to figure out how to rebuild your career mm-hmm. without giving mm-hmm. up yourself. Cause that's one thing that was really important to me. Like I still want to do what I love to do. I just don't want to do it in that context anymore. And you as a pastor and a Christian author mm-hmm. have now pivoted and are doing some incredible work in the business world. So share with everybody mm-hmm. what you're up to these days. Oh, well, I love the way that you frame that because I, I'm so fascinated by those pivot moments for people, not even just in career, but like when you shift in a, in a significant way in the way that you view the world, what's the fallout of that? You know, what are the ways that that changes you? How do you gain a new sense of purpose? How do you gain a new footing for your, you know, your own sense of identity? Because, you know, let's face it, the, the work that we do and the communities that we're in when it comes to faith are a huge part of our sense of self, right? Yeah. It's fascinating to me that you you had that same that same kind of journey. It's that piece of self-knowledge where you kind of you unpack your own journey and you're able to say like these are the things that light me up. These are the things that make me come alive. And I think what's hard in the transition from ministry to, you know, just other work is is that you kind of identify a lot of those gifts as like only being used in that context. Like, well, I, I love to pastor people. Where else can you pastor people? Yeah. For a certain group of people with a certain gift set, like yourself, the church, the evangelical church was just perfect you know, for somebody he's, who's either a good musician, a good speaker, Mm -hmm. a good Mm -hmm. pastor, good with people. You know, there's so many things that worked so well in that setting that when, that's kind of that rug's kind of taken out from under you. Like, well, it's and, and it's and it's also be, the way that those things are described. They're termed and and titled and labeled in 
you know, religious language. So then it, it feels like, what, what do I do with, you know, oh, that's how do I call this when I take this into the business world? And I think that's yeah. part of the translation process. But my, my process was very similar to what you're describing when I came to grad school. So I'd pastored for 17 years, but had never gotten any formal theological training. It had always been kind of on the job, being mentored. I look back and I just think that was insane that I was, I was given the responsibility and the, and the, you know, kind of the platforms that I did um, in the church, but going to seminary at, at the end of that became the, the space for me to just acknowledge to myself, which was really hard. I don't want to pastor anymore. You know, like that, that was very difficult because it was, I felt like I was letting people down. I was having to reinterpret my own story because in my mind, I'd been called to this. This was part of God's plan for me. And it's how I'd envisioned my future for so long. So it was, there was a lot that had to be deconstructed, my own vision of my own life. And so that was step one, realizing I don't want to be a pastor. Step two is that process of saying, where are my areas of gifting? What are the common themes? What are the things that I love? And I, and I knew immediately it had to do with communication. I love words. I love connecting with people in lots of different forms of communication. And, and then kind of narrowing that you know, down to say, well, where does, that, where does that set of gifts and that passion meet other people's, other people's needs? Where can I help them? Where can I, you know, make a living to, to take care of my family and so on? And, and that was a, you know, it, it's a, it's an exciting, scary process, but now I'm, I'm using those gifts of communication where I'm creating content for companies, you know, building websites and helping them clarify their message and actually communicate in a way that really captures what they're about, you know? So it's really funny because I think as a pastor, I would translate these ancient texts to modern day language to get people to take action in a religious context. And now I go in and I, I work with people in these different industries. Oftentimes they have practically a, a different language they use in their field. And you have to translate that so that they're reaching the, you know, the, the consumer and the, the, you know, the people that they're wanting to, to sell their product to or communicate their idea to. So I'm able to use those same skills. And, and I would say a new aspect for me in the last year has been I've started to do what I call message clarity coaching, where I work with individuals to process their own life and story to help get clarity about what message they, they want to share with the world. So these are thought leaders. These are people who want to write books. These are people who want to influence. These are people who have this sense of, I've got something inside me that I want to share with the world, but I don't know how to articulate it. I don't know how to, to get at that. And so I do these small groups where I coach people through a process of looking back on their life, looking forward, you know, understanding their own voice, owning that in a, in a way. And um, that has been incredibly fulfilling for me. And I would say that taps into a lot of those gifts as a pastor, you know, it's coming alongside people and helping them get a new sense of vision. So that, that's been wonderful. That sounds just beautiful and fascinating and interesting as well. <laughs> kind of in that same sense of feeling a little bit of loss, how do you feel connected to, this is kind of a broad question, how do you feel connected to God with that work? Mm -hmm. Because I know personally for me, one of the one of the things that I feel a little bit strong about right now is I, I won't work with other 
you know, Christian organizations. I work with a lot of people who are Christ followers, but they're organizations. Mm. I would much rather work for a secular organization, but I have found that in those spaces, I've seen just as much influence of God, influence of the divine, mm. uh, Jesus following going on within the context mm-hmm. of them. So in your setting, which is, you know, this, this business setting, right. and I love the kind of work that you, you do. It reminds me a little bit of like Donald Miller story brand. And are you connected with that? You are. I am a, I'm a story brand guide. Yeah. I thought and, you were, I thought and you Don, were. Don is one of my oldest friends. I've known him since I was 17. And so we both kind of came up in writing at the same time and his evolution into being just an incredible business owner is is awesome and inspiring for me. So yeah, I'm a story brand guide. <laughs> yes, yes. So you and Donald together, I mean, you've both managed to express your faith very much so in a, a secular mm. world. So how does that work in your mind and in your heart? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but spirituality, your faith is still very important to you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I would say I have gone through such a significant shift in the way that I think about faith, I would say I'm very much in process. It's hard for me to identify as a, as a Christian, as a evangelical. And, and so I've, I've changed so much that I can't even wear that label in good conscience, but I'm in process. I don't, you know, I don't even, I don't know what I, how I'd want to describe myself. I'm not even exactly sure how, where I would land, but everything about me has been shaped by the kind of the story of redemption, the story of, you know, (laughs) incarnation and transformation and so on. So I can never separate myself from that way of, of viewing things. And so even now, like the work that I'm doing with, with coaching and helping people to articulate their message and share their ideas with, with others is so informed by this sense of there, there are so many people who have been kind of stifled and silenced, and I want to be a part of helping them find their voice and communicate that, which I, I find a lot of inspiration in, in Scripture for that. One of my verses that's really shaped my, my view of things is in Ezekiel 33, where it's talking about the shepherds, the religious leaders of the day, have really abandoned and not cared for the weak and the hurting and those that have been damaged by their by the poor leadership of the shepherds and god actually says i i'm so i'm going to be their shepherd i'm going to go after them and i'm going to heal and bind up and and restore and even though i don't view myself as a you know i'm not in the church in the same way i still feel called to that work I still feel that that's part of what my life is about. And it's about going and, and kind of trying to come alongside others that have been wounded and damaged by these religious institutions. So where I'll end up landing, I'm not exactly sure, but I do, I do think that those things inform me. And in my work, I mean, I, I work with, I mean, today I was doing a strategy call with um, this woman who is a realtor and a mortgage agent who specializes in helping couples that are going through a divorce and they're trying to figure out what to do with their home and how they're going to handle things. And you know what? I see her like providing a service that is so significant and important for people at a really difficult moment in their life. And I do see like there's a sense of the divine that's present in that, even though it's a business. And the amazing thing is I actually do work for, for churches at times. I, this, this blows my mind, but there are churches that will seek me out and say, 
Josh, we know where you are with, you know, shifting in your beliefs about faith, but we think you will create the content for our church website that will actually reach the people that we want to reach, which is mind blowing to me <laughs> that that happens. And I have a, a an open heart towards the, the church community. You know, I, I see churches doing a lot of really important work in the world. I don't feel like I'm opposed to faith or opposed to any, any religion. And I love having that kind of openness to people that are in all different kinds of, of places. Uh, what's your hope for the future of humanity, Joshua? We've had a rough <laughs> couple of years You're doing some really important work we're starting to see some really you know beautiful things happen around mm. us i think in the midst of some really difficult things uh where in in your line of work in your space of the world are you starting to see hope for a, a better future mm. i would lo- love to contribute to the world more empathy you know that that we would be able to look at each other and recognize none of us is perfectly consistent None of us has some perfect worldview that we, you know, live out without doubts, without struggles. Uh, and I think that so much of the, the tension and ugliness of the world comes from a lack of that empathy where we, we view our neighbor as the other, you know, that they, that their system is broken, they're wrong, they're hypocrites, they're all those kinds of things. And I think when we start to recognize, you know what, we're all trying to piece together meaning we're all trying to find happiness and hope and we're all doing that imperfectly it just gives us so much more kindness and graciousness towards others and where we we lose that and we start giving into fear we start trying to control we start trying to demonize and and so i i just want to be a part of encouraging um, that kind of empathy wherever i find it whether that's within religion, outside of religion, business, politics, whatever it might be. So that's where, you know, the work that I'm doing with coaching is is so encouraging to me because I'm I'm interacting with people and I just see these incredible ideas, incredibly important messages that need to be shared and where I can empower that. You know, especially if I can be specific, especially with women, like I think I've been a part of a lot of systems that have really oppressed and held women down in the church, honestly. And so part of my own sense of life mission is wherever I can lift women up, let them have a greater voice, you know, use whatever platform I have to boost them and just see them completely surpass any of the things that I've done or accomplished would just be awesome, you know? And so those are some things that that give me excitement and, and I would say hope. Special thanks to Josh Harris for being on the show today. Hey, I'm going to put a direct link to the YouTube video of the documentary that was done on him and the book I'd Kiss Dating Goodbye. You can follow Josh at his website, joshharris.com, and learn more about message clarity coaching and find him on Instagram at, at @harrisjosh. Of course, to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. Until next time, keep walking.